Too many lives in the United States have been lost to senseless gun violence, more so than, than a lot of the wars that we can think of throughout world history, uh, right here on the streets in some communities in the United States. And I don't mean to say that you know the United States is dangerous by any means, but there are pockets of neighborhoods that, uh, that you have to be mindful that uh, there is violence. And a lot of the violence that occurs there uh, arise from the inappropriate and illegal use of firearms to hurt others. And so how do we balance those rights of being able to have a gun with protecting the public interest right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is also one of those founding principles uh, of the United States of America. Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. We're in the middle of season three of the podcast, focusing on interviews conducted in the heart of the Midwest in the greater Kansas City metropolitan area. For those of you who are new to the podcast, more information can be found on the website culturium.com, that's C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M.com, or on Instagram at DRJ Podcast. A reminder, the podcast is absolutely nonprofit and free of advertisers and lobbies. Today's episode is entitled Politics. Although Plato is thought to have been the first political scientist some 350 to 400 years before Christ, it was Aristotle about 325 some years before Christ who coined the term politics from the Greek word polis, meaning the town and therefore politics, meaning things that concern the town. At its core, politics concerns itself with the way people manage to live together, what agreements they make with each other, and how they make decisions. There are various political systems in the world today, best known to us are democracies, but we also know of monarchies or emirates or sultanates, various theocracies, and authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, such as dictatorships or oligarchies. And of course, we're aware of the fact that without some sort of politics, the system that rules is anarchy. The focus today is on city politics and specifically on the office of the mayor that oversees a city's main departments, including the police department, the fire department, the department of education, the housing department, as well as the Department of Transportation. My guest today is the mayor of Kansas City, Kansas, Tyrone Garner. Mayor Garner, a Democrat, is a former police officer. He served the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department for over 30 years, not only as an officer, but also as captain, major, and finally deputy chief of police. Mayor Garner is a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and holds degrees from Mid-America Nazarene University, as well as Ottawa University. Welcome, Mayor Garner, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you today, sir? Oh, I'm good. You know, the sun is shining, so it's a, it's a beautiful day. And, you know, here in Kansas City, you know, for all the KU fans, you know, we're rooting for the, uh, the, the Kansas home team of uh, you know, Kansas University. So it's a great day. <laughs> and do you think we can root with confidence? I'm highly optimistic. 
Mayor Garner, should I get to my questions right away? Yes, yes. Let's, let's hop right into it. So this podcast is actually not at all political. I like to remember that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for example, did not formally affiliate himself with a political party. And when asked which party he supported, he answered, neither. He said, and, and I quote, I don't think the Republican Party is a party full of the almighty God, nor is the Democratic Party. They both have weaknesses, and I'm not inextricably bound to either party. End of quotation. Mayor Garner, in what ways do you see yourself as a Democrat? And in what ways are you free of a political party? I think for me, it's more about, um, obviously, I, I work for the Unified Government of Wyandotte County, Kansas City, Kansas. I'm a public servant by trade. I, I love helping people and, and trying to find real solutions to people's problems. And so for me, it's more about, even though I'm in politics, I don't view myself as a, as a politician. I view myself as an elected official here to do the work of the people. That work, in my mind, is community-driven all politics aside in my mind, I'm just here to do the work of, of the people and hopefully to make Wyandotte County a great and safe place to live, work and raise a family. I mean, that, that's really my motivation is just how best can I collaborate with, uh, with our staff, with our other elected officials uh, throughout our county, as well as our, our great and awesome citizens here to do good work and, and just improving people's lives. So that, that's what it's about for me. Mm. I think sometimes because we have a lot of international listeners, sometimes it's really interesting for our listeners to find out about the U.S. Um, system of politics. Would you mind going into perhaps your experience with the two-party system and how that manifests itself in Kansas? I like to look at things to, through a lens of let's find the things that we can agree on and build upon that. I mean, we can always find things that we disagree about. Um, but finding common ground, no matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, let's find the, the things that we can agree on and really work towards making life better um, for those in Kansas and specifically here in Wyandotte County in Kansas City, Kansas, and just improving people's lives. And really, I feel taking politics out of it, it should be community driven um, in a democratic society, looking at what the majority of the people want in our community and allowing that to really drive you um, in um, your service uh, to the to that community. And so that's, that's just kind of the lens that I look at through things through. Mm -hmm. And actually having had the chance to spend some time now recently in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area, I would really hazard to say that I feel the majority of the population expresses this sentiment as well. From my experience, I didn't feel a division between parties. I don't know if, if that's accurate. Well, if that's a question, again, there's always things that, uh, you know, certain individuals may disagree upon, but uh, I, I, I believe that anybody that gets in, in, into the political arena, I, I, I feel confident in saying that the majority of those people are, are there because they care about their communities, they care about the people in their communities, and, and they just want to try and make life better for, for people. And so that, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about something that I think will interest a lot of the listeners, and that is your experience with the Kansas City Police Department. 
I'll let you I'll let you just talk freely. What would you like to tell us about the Kansas City Police Department and your time with them? 30 years. Wow. Uh, well, I started as a police cadet back in 1987, right out of high school. I got laid off and I, I went into the military after I got out of the military, the U.S. Army, to be exact. And I went right back to work for the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. And I was one of the youngest uh, African-Americans to get promoted to the rank of detective, captain, major, and then ultimately deputy chief of police. And it was a rewarding experience. I got to meet a, a lot of good people in Wyandotte County. The value of being uh, in, in that profession for me was, again, again, just being able to help people, trying to find uh, real solutions to problems. I, I enjoyed the time there. Um, there's always challenges you know, uh, just being a, a police officer, I, I can't tell you how many uh, late nights that I had to work. Uh, I worked every shift um, um, that uh, that you could think of. Um, um, it just, uh, but it was rewarding just when you do know that you did a good thing in helping people, improving their lives, keeping them safe. And, and, and you get the simple things that uh, some people don't think a lot of, but I encourage people to do more of is just saying thank you to that police officer, that good police officer that does good things uh, when he responds, uh, when he's out there doing the things that we pay them for. And that's just to uh, provide a service that uh, uh, can, can be the glue that holds our society together uh, by keeping us safe and, and keeping, uh, keeping things calm. Because, you know, oftentimes these individuals, they run into danger where so many of us run away from it. So I'm proud to have served with the Kansas Kansas Police Department. Hmm. You speak of the challenges you encountered. What were some of the challenges? Some of the challenges were just uh, having to deal with the, the exposure that uh, police officers deal with, seeing things that most people don't see. You see the worst in communities. You're exposed to pain, death in, in some instances. You're just exposed to a lot of things that, uh, um, that most people will never have to experience. And, and you still have to uh, compose yourself and go out there and still um, perform your duty uh, in a way that, that is honorable and with excellence. Um, and, and, and you have to do so by, by also ensuring that you, you treat everybody with, with respect and professionalism, irrespective of the situation. But the biggest challenge is, is that I experienced when I was exposed to seeing bad things happen to good people and sometimes, you know, uh, you didn't catch that perpetrator. Those were the hard moments uh, when, when you, you, you dotted every I and crossed every T and you, you, you tried to uncover every stone, trying to, to make sure that you brought those people to appropriate justice in a court of law. And sometimes that just wasn't the case. And so those were the most challenging moments uh, of just uh, of that job is just dealing with, a, you know, the pain in people's eyes when they were victimized and having to be that person to, to console them. And, and just the challenge of, of being, trying to be all things to everyone, which, you know, most police officers aren't equipped to do. I mean, you're a social worker, you're a, you're a protector, you're a, you know, you're a mentor, you're a, you know, you're a, a person that deescalates situations. Uh, you're a peacemaker. You're, I mean, just trying to be, so many different things and, and trying to put whatever life issues that you may be having, because we're all human and life happens to all of us. Um, and just because you wear that uniform doesn't mean that you're, that you're not human, um, but you have to put all those things aside and put others before yourself and, and often above your family. 
um, in, in your service to the community. So, so th those are the biggest challenges. Hmm. And those are, I think, challenges that are personal, right? To, to each individual um, police officer. How do you think the challenges have changed for the police force in the Kansas City area? How do you think the challenges have changed from the late 80s to today? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to make sure that police officers are policing responsibly, equitably, making sure that uh, police departments reflect the demographics of the community that they serve, making sure that we're hiring the right people because everybody is not uh, <laughs> suited to be a police officer. And that's just a reality. And so how do you hire people, the right people on the front end, so you don't have to fire the wrong people on the tail end? Um, making sure that the officers have the appropriate training, the equipment they need, the resources, as well as being able to hold them accountable. And not just accountable to the police department's uh, policies, but accountable to the people in the communities that they serve and the values that um, those people in communities have for their police departments, along with the expectations they have for all the things that I described. Those are some of the, the biggest changes and things that I've seen uh, occur uh, along with, uh, you know, just policies, moving policies uh, forward that, uh, that reflects uh, professionalism when you talk about use of force, um, when you talk about de-escalation, when you talk about uh, cultural competence, and when you talk about uh, appropriate decision-making and, and using discretion responsibly, which is one of the greatest uh, powers that police officers have is their discretion and balancing that with just uh, using common, good common sense when it comes to dealing with people, finding the right people that, that aren't there just for a paycheck, aren't there just to say I'm the police, but are actually there because they love people, they love their community, and they're there to serve. Those are some of the, the things that I think police officers are moving towards. Um, I was an advocate of Barack Obama's 21st century policing recommendations that came out. I think those are awesome recommendations when you talk about those six pillars and how those can help police departments improve the relationship between the community uh, that they serve and, 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 and their agencies. Community policing should be a priority for any professional uh, 21st century forward-thinking uh, police department. And I think a lot of police departments across the country, um, as well as here, right here in Wyandotte County, uh, have seen the value in that. And, and I know that uh, right here at the Kansas City Kansas Police Department, where I work, back in the, in the, in the mid-90s, uh, we were one of the uh, agencies that uh, before uh, community policing was synonymous across the country, it, it was uh, one of the things that we embraced and we were able to build upon um, right here in Kansas City, Kansas. And so hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. Uh, the podcast is really listened to in 30 plus countries, so really all over the world. So I think a lot of the listeners aren't as familiar with, with everything about the U.S. As, as perhaps you and I are. Would you mind going into it a tiny bit more? What is community policing? What are some of the main points of it? The basic context, I think, hopefully people can understand, it, is that the community is the police, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the police is the community. Often communities hire police to do the things that either they don't want to do or they, they're not equipped to do or they want to have the right professional people to do. Community policing is about working with the community, not so much policing the community and bringing policing to the community, but rather policing with the community, sitting down and working with the community uh, to find real solutions on how to not just fight crime, 
but to problem solve and find solutions to things that uh, that may um, facilitate crime or uh, violence or things of those natures. And so a lot of times police officers deal with the symptoms of crime. Community policing is, and, and problem-oriented policing is more centered and geared towards um, addressing not just the symptoms, but the causes of crime and working with the community to that end. So um, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I teach here and my students are always very curious about politics, about U.S., the U.S. police department. And I think that sometimes through the international media, the U.S. police as a, as a general term gets a bad reputation. And I find myself always trying to explain and trying to defend exactly what you're describing, good officers, community policing, police officers who are part of the community and help the community. So that's, I think, really important to hear it from someone who actually has firsthand experience with it. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I feel that, uh, I mean, police, policing should be a, prof a profession, uh, a professionalized, uh, well-trained individuals that are there. And, and we've got to remind our officers, um, they're there to serve the people and, and not just police the people. And so when you talk about community, that means the officers getting out of their cars, out of their stations and connecting with the people and having the building relationships in a way that's not confrontational and that's not enforcement based. And that's building the trust that with the community that the officers will need to be successful in keeping the community safe. Because at the end of the day, police officers are only as good as the information, the support, the respect that they get from, from the community. If, if they don't have that, they're not going to be very effective. Mm. Well, I moved away from the U.S. in 2001. It's been that long already. Again, just to go back to, to that question, how do you think the face of the police has changed in the last 20 years? I think that... Uh, Police uh, departments are more in tune, or at least they're trying to be more in tune with their community. They're recognizing the value of diversity within their agencies. They're trying to be more proactive, more transparent, uh, more engaged, more visible. And some police departments are realizing that you can't just enforce or police your way out of a lot of um, um, the issues that confront uh, communities. Um, that you, again, that you have to look at what are the causes. And it could be something as simple as putting a street light on a street. You'd be amazed what, what that could do. You'd be amazed what lighting can do at night to deter crime. Boarding up that vacant house so uh, illicit or illegal activity isn't encouraged uh, in a vacant house. And mm -hmm. so you board it up until, you know, the city leaders uh, can figure out what to do with it. I mean, just little things like that. Just how professionalized policing has come. When you talk about hotspot policing, using technology in ways that we've never used it, looking at the areas where crime is happening and putting the resources uh, in those areas where, where it's happening the most mm. uh, and, and applying those resources in a more uh, systematic a way that could curb uh, crime and violence. So it, it, it is evolving. It is, it's a constant evolution of law enforcement here in the United States to make sure that, uh, that we're protecting people's rights, that we're serving responsibly, that we're enforcing the laws with integrity and that we're building positive relationships with our communities, with our residents and in our neighborhoods, and that we're focusing on finding solutions 
to causes as opposed to just responding and being reactive to problem, I mean, to uh, symptoms, and then just uh, really embracing some of the best practices of community policing, problem oriented policing, and using technology in ways um, that, that haven't been used before to uh, keep communities safe. Mm. One of the things that a lot of my students, a lot of the people here in Europe have problems with is, you know, gun laws in the U.S. And I'm often asked, how can it be that there aren't more restrictions on bearing arms? How do you feel about that? I mean, my thing is, is that I respect our Constitution and it provides a unique right for American citizens to uh, bear arms. And uh, I respect that right. Um, but I think that uh, on the other side, that I think that uh, as uh, from a legislative point, um, the policymakers and the leaders in our country, there, there has been an, an uptick of, of gun violence here lately in the United States. And we've got to come up with uh, real conversations uh, about finding real solutions to these problems. Is it just removing guns from people? I don't know. Is it, uh, is, is it something we do in schools where we, we train uh, uh, conflict resolution and de-escalation? Is it a matter of psychology and, and the things that, uh, that, that, that we're not doing? I mean, we need to take an, an in-depth look. I mean, do we, uh, even though guns are legal to own, do we, uh, do we regulate ammunition? You know, because uh, you can't shoot a gun if there's no ammunition. Do we allow disallow access to high capacity military grade weapons from, from our residents. You know, a lot of people would say yes. I mean, why do you need a military grade weapon to, to hunt <laughs> or, you know, to do other things? I mean, I, so, so what are those boundaries and where are those limitations? And really the, the ultimate question is, is how do we preserve life? And if we know that we have a problem, so if those problems can't be ignored. We have to, uh, have a hard conversation and a hard look at how do we preserve lives because too many lives in the United States have been lost and to, to just on our streets here in America to senseless gun violence, uh, more so than, than a lot of the wars that we can think of throughout uh, world history, uh, right here uh, on the streets uh, in, in some communities in the United States. And I don't mean to say that, you know, the United States is dangerous by any means, um, but there are pockets of neighborhoods that, uh, that you have to be mindful that uh, there is violence. And a lot of the violence that occurs there uh, arise from the inappropriate and, and illegal use of firearms um, to hurt others. And so how do we balance those rights of being able to have a gun with protecting the public interest right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is also one of those founding principles uh, of the United States of America. I think you said that really well. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate that you answered the question. That's really something, gun violence is something that really puzzles at least Europeans. Thank you. Thank you for, for addressing the question. I would move on to the fire department and ask you what are the biggest concerns and considerations for this particular department? Well, the fire department here in the, in the city of Kansas City, Kansas, which I have control interests over. The biggest need is, is equipment coming out of COVID, hiring trained individuals to be firefighters or emergency technicians, EMTs. That's a challenge. Uh, as well as uh, here in Kansas City, Kansas, we have an aging infrastructure. A lot of our fire stations are aging. Um, they either need to be upgraded or just outright replaced. Even 
when you look at where some of our fire stations are positioned and you compare that to the response times to residential areas, uh, we need to do a better job of making sure that whatever fire stations are there, that uh, they're positioned correctly based on um, um, the data and the science that's involved in, in, in how firefighters uh, respond to calls um, in an expeditious way. And so uh, those are the biggest challenges, personnel, personnel and equipment and, and just facilities is, is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, can't speak to any other communities, but, but those are the biggest challenges that we face. Another another aspect of, of of U.S. culture that puzzles Europeans is the abundance of wooden houses. Anything that you'd like to say about that? We you, we do build in Kansas. We build out of wood, uh, inst- more so than stone or brick, um, which certainly causes a lot more challenges for the fire department as well. I imagine. I can say for the Kansas City area that that is normal. It's probably over 99% of the building structures that are residential um, are, are built out of wood. That is just a, a, the norm here in the United States. Especially in the Midwest. I think if you go to the East Coast, I think there you have a lot more use of brick and stones. But, but certainly yeah. in the Midwest, in the South, it's, it's a lot more wooden structures. Yes, mm-hmm. I would agree. So let's move on to the Department of Education. What are your views on public schools versus private schools? Hmm. We don't really, <laughs> the mayor's office and our city government doesn't oversee education here in, in most communities in the United States. But let me just speak to my county of Wyandotte. We have four school districts and they have their own superintendent um, who run the day-to-day operations. And then you have a board which oversees the superintendents and the budgets, the policy of those day-to-day operations. And so they kind of guide what goes on. And there's also a board of regents at the state level um, that has a lot of influence over um, some of those things. And so this office doesn't have a a lot of influence per se over education other than to support um, education because from uh, my perspective is a well-educated community it leads to a thriving and successful community, you know, and, and that's, that's the overriding goal. I always say that education, whether it's a technical school um, outside of a four-year college or whether you go to a four-year institution or you just get a two-year degree, education is key to success. And every statistic in the United States um, shows that those that have some form of advanced education beyond high school generally uh, end up earning more here in the United States than those that don't. And so when you talk about building generational wealth, not just for yourself, but for your family, education is key. And one of the statements that I've always made was that the first step to opportunity, the the second step to to hope, and the third step to an improved destiny um, starts with an education. And that was something that I always used to say when I was a a board member with with our local community college here. So... um, I think education is vital and, and we support our community being, uh, you know, highly educated. I mean, it, it just adds value to uh, our local uh, community, our economy, but it also is a way to enhance and improve people's lives. Would you mind going a little bit more into uh, what you think a good education means? You were talking about how education is essential to building a good 
career a good future. But what does it mean to have a good education? Well, I mean, it, it's a lot of things. I mean, you have a traditional education in schools and I think early childhood education. Uh, a lot of studies in the United States have shown how valuable that is uh, for our children. Um, if we get them in, in, in school and get them educated as early as possible, teaching them the basics, to help them be more successful as they go through their educational cycle all the way through, only, I mean, higher education. But there's another side to education as well. It, yeah, you can learn, you know, your science and your math and your English and your social science and things of those natures in school. But there's another component that I think and that I've learned is just as valuable. And sometimes, and there's a lot of groups here in Wyandotte County that do this and they do it very well. During the summer, they, they teach our children basic life skills. So whereas you may... Um, know how to do math and social studies and English um, and things of those natures you learn in, in traditional school, but, uh, but you learn how to apply those things. And that's where that additional training comes in with some groups that are doing those things and working with our young people. Um, how do you write a check? How do you open up a bank account? Um, the correct way to interact with people and network, how to conduct yourself in a job interview, how to appropriately answer those questions. What does it mean to volunteer? Um, how do you start a business and how do you uh, maintain a sustainable, successful business? A lot of those likes of skills that you may not learn in school. Um, you have certain groups here in Wyandotte County that have identified those, uh, those gaps, those blind spots that are left out of the educational system. And they try and give uh, our young people that base of knowledge that if they couple with the formal education they get in school, those life skills, um, that just how to apply those things in everyday life really become valuable for our young people as they come out of high school or, or into college and, and they come out. And, and so they're better prepared to uh, face the challenges of a very competitive workforce and world. I had the opportunity to directly compare educational systems, right? I have three children who go to school here in Germany. And we were just back in Kansas City visiting my parents in Leewood. So this is the Blue Valley School District. And they actually attended school there for six weeks. And one of the things that I really noticed that I really applauded and welcomed so much was how much the children were mentored in school. Whether it is life skills that you're talking about, they did have cooking classes and woodworking class. But beyond that, they were very, very closely mentored by counselors, by the teachers. They were right away paid attention to as people and helped in whatever they needed help in. And I thought that was absolutely remarkable and wonderful to observe. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so I think that that's, that's, there is an, an accent on that in the U.S. right now, teaching young people, not just academics, but skills, how to be human beings, how to be good human beings, to some extent, ethics, spirituality, practical skills, and things like that as well. And I would agree with you with that. I think that's a part of having a good education. It's not just the facts. All right. All right. Okay, may I go back just very quickly to the first question I asked you about schools and education, public schools versus private schools. The concept of private and public schools is a little bit different here. Perhaps you could shed some light on how you see it in Kansas City. 
Well, I'm not really familiar with private schools because I didn't go to one. So <laughs> I went to a public school and, and that's where I graduated. But more, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe more just on how are public and private schools seen or viewed? What are the, for, for you, from your point of view, when I say private school or public school, or if you find out someone went to public school or private school, what are the, what are the thoughts that come to mind? Well, I think if you talk to most people, normally when they think of private schools, they think of people that are privileged, that have the financial means to send their children to a private school that may offer a better education. I don't know if that's always the case. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest our misconception that's out there, but. Mm. And, and do you think it's a misconception? Yeah, I think that's a misconception. I mean, I'm a product of the public school. I can say that the schools here in Wyandotte County, and I, can, I can't speak of any others. I think we have very good schools that provide an adequate education for our young folks. Our largest school district here has a program, Diploma Plus, that really allows uh, high school seniors to get college credits and some college education. So by the time they graduate, if they do it throughout the summer as well, some of them already have their associate's degrees or they have enough, enough credits uh, for their basic courses before they go to a four-year institution. There's also a technical component. Several of our high schools uh, uh, do technical education, everything from mapping to architecture to auto repair to, I mean, there's just a variety of things, small engine repair, things that uh, would allow uh, our young people that if they didn't want to go to a four-year institution would allow them to uh, become entrepreneurs and start a small successful business uh, and grow that business and allow it to be sustainable. So um, I, I, I do believe that, uh, that our public schools, if, if they have their appropriate and right leadership and with the right investments from, from their communities, um, they can produce the type of quality educated young folks um, that can really help communities become um, resilient and successful uh, moving forward. So uh, I, I give a lot of credit to school, schools here, right here in Wyandotte County. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to Shawnee Mission West. I'm a product of the Shawnee sure. Mission Schools, the school district. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, I did. And I, and I graduated high school with two and a half years of college credit. So. I had basically my basic math, basic uh, science, basic English, all taken care of when I went to college. So, yeah. Right. That's a good example of it. Yeah. But I do, but I did go to a private school in seventh and eighth grade, but that also, that has more to do with the fact that my parents had just immigrated. So I, they weren't wealthy. (laughs) I was on scholarship. I was one of the scholarship kids. And it was more because they wanted me to learn English and to have the extra attention. And there I do have to applaud my private school in Texas that was in Texas because they had very, very small classes, you know, seven to 10 students per class. And I did get extra attention through that. So I think probably there's pros and cons to both always. And, and it just depends. It's a choice, I guess, of, of what, where you send your kids. And probably you can have very good private schools and very good public schools and, and the opposite as well. So. Right, right. So let's have one question about uh, housing and transportation. I was reading on the internet that you have some great ideas about this. Would you mind sharing some of them with us? Transportation is key. I mean, we got to get people to the jobs. We got to get them out of their neighborhoods and and get them uh, uh, to places where they can shop, you know, where they can uh, 
have uh, access to entertainment venues. I think transportation drives and helps fuel the economies of, 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 of cities and communities. If it's well-planned, well-thought-out, you know, it's strategic in, in its routes. It's not just something that we want. It's something that's really needed in our society today is public transportation. If you want to look at it from a point of um, moving into the conversation of, of green uh, and sustainable energy and, and how we look at it through that lens, it's, it's very valuable. Uh, housing, the, the housing stock in Wyandotte County uh, is old. Really, the, the vision that, that I'm trying to share with the uh, with our elected officials is, is that we have to improve our housing stock. We, we need uh, senior housing, um, that that's a critical need um, as our baby boomers age and retire and, and, uh, and are ready to, to downsize from houses into senior communities uh, to where some are where they can be still live and be self-sufficient and, and sustain healthy lifestyles. Um, just, just not a, a four or five bedroom house where they raise their families. I mean, and those are those are critical needs, as well as affordable housing, uh, housing that's uh, affordable for those that, uh, uh, especially when you talk about the the rising cost of rents and interest rates, uh, which uh, you know allows people the ability to get a loan to be able to buy a home, and then home prices have really skyrocketed here in the Kansas City metro area. So affordable housing is is really key, and and it you know it, it's really a necessity that I see because. It's about the quality of life uh, for people. You know, you don't want people just having a house um, that they can never enjoy with, you know, for themselves or their families because uh, um, they're working two and three jobs just to pay the rent or the mortgage. Um, and that's just a place where they sleep, take a shower, and then they go right back to work. <laughs> so you, you really want to, you really want neighborhoods that are really uh, not just houses, but are homes um, that, uh, translate into vibrant, uh, resilient, and sustainable neighborhoods. Um, you want it to be affordable. And, and I believe that, uh, that we also need housing that, uh, not affordable housing, but housing that is affordable at, uh, at all income levels um, that are attractive. And that these neighborhoods are well thought out um, strategically um, with uh, nice designs, uh, with, with uh, sidewalks and streetlights and, and green spaces and parks and, uh, and that, uh, Really, I would like to see a committee. My vision is, is where you can go from affordable housing or low-income housing to uh, moderate to upper-income housing. And because our communities are so well thought out, you really won't be able to see um, the difference um, from one block or one street to the next because uh, um, they're so well planned that they integrate well together. And, and that's the overall vision. But we do need to uh, um, look at improving our, our housing options and stock uh, in Wyandotte County for our, our residents. And I think that allow for um, economic growth because the more rooftops that you bring in, it also will bring in more brick and mortar businesses um, that will provide the goods and services that these residents uh, not only need, but they deserve uh, to sustain themselves and their families as they just try and uh, live a, a, a life that reflects the American dream. Hmm. Let me go back a little bit about transportation. Why do you think there's such resistance to public transport in, in the Midwest? I mean, I guess on the coasts, you have some public transport or in the very large cities, New York, Boston, Chicago. But why is there such a resistance to it? That's, that's one of the things that has always puzzled, puzzled me because it's so convenient. It's so great for me to take the, the subway into work and read the, on the train and 
it's it's really quite convenient to not have to drive and pay attention and pollute the environment, et cetera. Uh, some of it may be status. I don't know. I mean, owning your own car and convenience. Uh, you know, I don't have to walk to a bus station and wait or a train station and get a ticket and, and wait. I can just get in my car, go, go where I need to go and, and come back home. And then plus, you know, you got to remember the Midwest was, was rural um, and agricultural base for, for so long. So um, I, I just think uh, generationally that mindset just uh, kind of flowed over to uh, the owning of your own transportation as opposed to taking public transportation. Um, but but I see moving forward is, is with the density of, of our neighborhoods and our community that uh, that public transportation is becoming more attractive. I know that uh, in our sister city of Kansas, Missouri, I mean, just the streetcars alone have been very successful in spurring economic growth along the routes. And so mm, absolutely. Um, we're looking we're looking at that as well. And so there's a lot of opportunities there that uh, that would be of great value to basically encourage people to take public transportation and. As gas prices continue to go up, I, I see the need for tr- public transportation becoming greater here in the Midwest. Mm. I mean, just in comparison, here we take our children to school by bike <laughs> or they go by themselves by bike. Most people go to work by bus and train and bike. <laughs> so it's such a huge difference. But that said, the distances in Kansas are so much larger so that's something for, for the international listeners. It is much larger distances that we're talking about. That's one. And two, the wide empty spaces and the big wide lanes are quite attractive. So I have to admit that I enjoy driving in Kansas quite a bit, quite a bit more than here. <laughs> so in closing, I have one, one last question for you. The podcast has a lot of listeners in Germany, and I know you were stationed in Germany when you were in the army. Would you mind telling us about some of the experiences you had abroad and how this affected the development of your political views? Well, I mean, being in Germany, it was a good experience leaving the the United States and just being exposed to a, a continent where back in the 80s was culturally different. So when I first arrived in Germany, the, the Berlin Wall, I believe, was still up. Yep. So it was, uh, you know, so you had that iron curtain that was still there. And uh, just uh, just culturally how things were, were, were different. Uh, but it was good getting out uh, and experiencing a different culture on a different continent in different views. But you learn that people are people. It doesn't matter where you go. Uh, people have the same basic needs. They, they want better for themselves and their children. Um, they want safe neighborhoods and communities. And again, the basic principles that I talked about earlier, they just want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, th- those are just basic human foundations that, that we all have. And it doesn't matter what language you speak, where you're at, um, it, it really makes you realize that even though we're on different sides of the world, we're not all that much different. But it was a great experience being in Germany. I, I Experiencing Creeksfield and, and uh, Kaiserslautern and Mannheim and um, uh, Ramstein Air Base. I mean, those are some of the places that I remember mm-hmm. when I was there. Uh, I don't know what the, those places look like now, but uh, those are those are just some of the names that I remember. And, and just learning a little bit of the language uh, when I was there. Um, Do you know, still remember anything? Uh, guten Tag. 
Auf Wiedersehen. If you don't know anything else, you know, so. Uh, That'll get you at, at least initial, you know, the initial contact. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So. And what, uh, what, what were the biggest cultural differences? Do you remember anything? Any, any culture shock that you remember? Well, I mean, in the United States, the foundation is uh, historically um, has a racial component to it, if that makes sense. You know, uh, what, what your race is. And, and then when I got to Germany, I, I just picked up and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but just some of the, the locals that I talked to, it was more so about religion. It was more so about what country you arrived from. You follow me? Because the countries over there were, you know, what we would call states over here. I mean, those are like literally countries, you know, and that was kind of opening for me. That's so interesting that you say that. Huh. Absolutely fascinating that you say that. I, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have thought that. And did you feel that race didn't play a role in, in Europe as much? Back then, not as much. Not as much, at least in the parts of Germany I went to. Uh, not like in the United States, in parts of the United States. But you got to know the history of the United States. Sure, sure. You know, when you talk about slavery and, and segregation and uh, discrimination and, uh, and Jim Crow. And I mean, you can go down the list. I mean, and not just with, with African-Americans or people of color, but I mean, even, uh, you know, Asian-Americans, uh, American Indians, uh, the Irish. I mean, when they came here, I mean, there's just it, it really was a lot of things were you know, had a foundation on, on race and race relations in the United States. Whereas, like I said, when I got to Germany, I heard a lot of talk about religion, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, and, and what country you arrived from. And uh, um, that was just kind of interesting to me. <laughs> just, uh, just looking at the, you know, the landscape, it, it was just kind of interesting to me. But, but what it said to me more than anything else is that human beings have a way of finding ways to separate ourselves, I mean, with, with minor things. And, and that's the unfortunate uh, reality, I guess, that uh, when we look at things through that lens is just uh, instead of looking at when I say finding the good and finding the common humanity we have and building on those things, but, but sometimes we find reasons to dislike or separate ourselves and, it, it, you know, and, and really point out differences uh, when, when we should be embracing our common humanity and, and the need we have to just live, live happy, live free, and, and to enjoy the best life that God gives us while uh, we've been blessed with this, uh, this short time we have on this earth. Mayor Garner, you, you said it beautifully. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much.